pours from the storm drains and the distant burn of a hundred flashing marquees. The distant burn of a hundred flashing marquees only serves to deepen the shadows. Cranston Walker has returned home to the city of Silkhaven, the jewel of the Atlantic. But he has not come back for the champagne and the arlequin salads. Something has happened to shake the millionaire playboy hired muscle. And he has come to regroup and reflect. He sits in a high-back chair, looking out the window of his penthouse at the Walker Grand Hotel. His sister, Vivienne, pours him a drink, then reclines on the chaise beside him. It's time. It's time for, for Neon Jezebel. Neon Jezebel. Thank you for joining us for this premiere episode of Neon Jezebel. We'll return to today's thrilling story in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you tired of having to buy a new destination card every time you step inside a teleporter? Do you worry that a flimsy card could send you to the wrong destination, or worse? Well, fear no more, because with SureStamp Teleportation Punch Cards, you can rest safe knowing that you're using the most reliable destination cards on the market. And they're reusable, too. You may not think about how much time goes into producing a high-quality punch card, but the folks at SureStamp make it their business to think about that and nothing else. The durable card stock can be read by a machine up to 50 times before showing any signs of wear. Show stamp punch cards are not perforated, so there's no concern over hanging chads or partial punches. Show stamp uses machines that cut spaces into their cards, assuring maximum card integrity. So next time you need a new destination card for your commute to work or a trip to see the family, be sure to get a show stamp teleportation punch card, the card with integrity. And now, back to Neon Jezebel.
Time makes the queerest things seem inevitable. Everything that I saw has begun to dig into little niches in my brain, finding the gaps in what I believed was real and knitting themselves into the fabric of my reality. So now, when I look back on it, the strangest thing to me is that I never met Dr. Syme. We spent two months at the Lake Placid Retreat, Rosamond, Lucian, and I. The place was established just before the war. Dr. Syme purchased this crescent-shaped tract of land along a part of the lake they call Paradox Bay. It's a beautiful spot. The main part of the retreat is along the southern end of the crescent, while the great house is on the north bank. There's a most convivial woods separating the two that I got to know rather well, but I only once crossed over into the main retreat. The dozen or so buildings there are for patients to convalesce in peace and safety. I'm told that the patients find a good deal of reassurance in the presence of others who share their affliction, but visitors who are neither sufferers nor trained medical professionals are a source of some embarrassment. And isn't that the great illness of our class? How many forms of madness, whether from inbreeding or syphilis or who knows what, how many of them would be perfectly tolerable among the great and the good if only they were not so embarrassing? What if we could all laugh when Uncle Robert comes to the party wearing nothing but a raincoat and Wellington boots? Or if we could all quietly ignore Cousin Gertrude for refusing to wear a corset? Although that's become the fashion these days, hasn't it? No more corsets, just those girdles and brassieres? Anyway, whatever mental state you might have been in, Paradox Bay was a lovely place to wake in the morning. Rosamond had finished her lecture tour for the season and was looking for further opportunities. Then there was the kidnapping attempt at the hotel. After that, it was decided among us that a little time out of the public eye would give the crazies the moments of respite they needed to calm down. Besides, Rosamond had several requests for private counseling sessions. If not for the awful fright of that kidnapping attempt, it would have all been rather convenient. Until she began her sessions with the mysterious Della Kane. Lucian and I were sent off to the servant's lodge and told to keep a wide berth from the house. It was Lucian who really put up a fight, there being something he didn't trust about the woman. For my part, I knew that to say E.D.A.D. gave one a nervous disposition was a gross understatement. However, I trusted Lucian's instincts. Miss Kane's second session with Rosamond began on a Tuesday morning. She was set to stay at the house until Wednesday afternoon. Lucian and I quarantined ourselves for the arrival, and once we were sure that the guest was settled in, we began to patrol the grounds. There were large hedges all along the corners of the property until you reached the woods. It was a lovely bit of forest, just big enough that you could get lost in it, if not for very long. It had a winding path through it, only just large enough for a car to pass through, should the need arise. But the way it was overgrown suggested that a car had not been through in some time. It was a spot of particular interest for Lucian and I, not only for its quiet beauty, but also because it would be an ideal place for ambushers to watch the comings and goings of the house. After all, this was not some secret hideaway. It was a clinic. They were listed in the telephone directory. That Tuesday, Lucian and I patrolled together. We had fallen behind on our reading during the war and were taking the opportunity of this quiet retreat to catch up. Walking the edges of the property together, we could discuss books. 
I did my best not to control the conversation. Lucian didn't have the education that you and I did, but he's a shop fellow, and once I began asking the right probing questions, he took to analytics quite well. The more linguistic aspects eluded him, but he could dissect a character with the best of them. It's the sort of insight one learns with a rough upbringing, I suppose. We had finished discussing the good soldier, and were moving into the greener pastures of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Ford Maddox Ford is perfectly brilliant, but one needs a palate cleanser. The trouble began on Wednesday morning. This time I was walking the forest alone, while Lucian took the northern hedges. We were to meet behind the house, make a final sweep, then retire for lunch. I reached the banks of Paradox Bay and began to walk towards the house. It rose like a country inn at the end of a desolate road, all promise and warmth. If a two-story house of grey brick, housing nine bedrooms, two dining rooms, a ballroom, and flushing toilets could be said to be a person, the Syme house was certainly a maternal grandmother. As I approached the house, though, I noted the roar of an engine some ways off. It was not entirely unusual. There was a road that ran past the western boundary, but it was by no means a well-trodden way. Feeling uneasy, I quickened my step, though with a mind towards staying a certain distance from the house itself. Then came a terrible crashing noise, and the roaring engine increased in volume substantially. I sprinted for the rear of the house, and hearing some commotion inside went barreling through the kitchen. It took another minute for me to reach the main hall. All the time I could hear the ladies screaming. Turning the corner into the receiving hall, I saw two men with hoods over their faces. One of them was dragging Rosamond out of the front door, and the other was bringing up the rear. The one at the back saw me and fired a pistol in my direction. I dove for cover and drew my own weapon. Just as I leaned out of cover to fire, the door shut. I dared not fire blindly, knowing that Rosamond was somewhere beyond that door. So I made for the window. A hefty book was at hand, and I tossed it through the pane to give myself a clear line of fire. There was a large white truck, the sort used by milkmen, that went screeching out of a hole they had punched in the hedge rather than bother with the gate to the driveway. I shot for the tires, but missed. It was all so frantic that I didn't have the time to aim properly. Lucian arrived a moment later. He shouted at me to get to the garage, and I obeyed. It took us what seemed like an eternity to find the keys. We didn't dare try the gap in the hedge, so Lucian had me run ahead to open the gate while he got the Chandler running. He barely stopped as I got in, and we rocketed down the road. The truck had a hell of a head start, though. We didn't catch sight of it before we reached a crossroads. From there, our desperate search would be blind luck, and we could lose more than we gained. So, we headed into town, a place called North Elba, and made a police report. We informed them that we were in Miss Syme's employ, and went over our war records with them, all to let them know that we would be continuing to investigate independently, and were willing to cooperate, though not abstain. Neither of us was willing to wait. We had one clue to go on, the truck. Thinking back, we both agreed that the thing had been riding a little too high, for a milk truck, anyway. The thing had plowed through a hedge, then driven back over the fallen bushes without the slightest trouble. We had cars that could do that sort of thing in the war. Chassis raised a couple feet higher than usual, and abnormally powerful engines. Someone had done a custom job on a milk truck, 
and it seemed it could only have been bespoke for this kidnapping. Whatever this was, it was miles beyond a family of zealots with a strange disregard for the safety of their children. As soon as we left the police station, we went to the nearest garage. We needed to know if anyone around there had seen an oddly customized milk truck, and no one notices cars quite like the boys that fix them up. The place we found had a large carved wooden sign out front with Milton, written in an Edward Johnston style, and a smaller plank hung beneath it, painted with the words, And Sons. We gave ourselves a moment in the car to cool down, then sauntered in. I let Lucian do the talking up front, while I pretended to be interested in the various kinds of motor oil on hand. It gave me a view into the garage proper. They had a Bentley on a lift, and it occurred to me that, in a country getaway for the rich and powerful, one was expected to get jobs done quickly. I'd explain the size of the place relative to the town around it. They were somewhat reticent, but they gave us a name. Barnaby and politely requested that we leave their name out of any conversations we might have with this Barnaby family. Now, the Barnabys are an old family of the Appalachian tradition. They claim to herald from the earliest fur-trapping families of the Adirondacks. As dubious as the ancestry of such people might be, I've never heard anyone actually dispute it. They still do a brisk trade in pelts, though the enterprising spirit of a folk who can cut a living out of wild hill country has led them to diversify into customized automobiles. They buy broken-down Fords and the like, haul them to their mountain sanctums, and go to work. It's very Frankenstein, but without the offense to God and all things pure. Somewhere in their process they manage to make the dashed things even louder, though with the resulting advances in top speed they've made, one need not suffer their roar for too long. Of course, in recent months they've had quite an uptick in demand for their back-road speedsters. I don't know what Mr. Volstead thought he was actually going to accomplish, but he's made quite a few hillbilly patriarchs far richer than they ever dreamed. We didn't have an address, as none of those mountain roads had quite gotten around to being named. Not officially, anyway. In fact, the only reason any of the Miltons knew where the house was was that they had been guided there on two occasions, once towing a car that had broken down and another time delivering a box of automotive parts. The directions we received were dubious, not in the sense that we doubted the integrity of the Milton brothers, only that we were unsure how accurately we could follow them. The whole endeavor hinged upon Lucian and I being able to identify a specific road, one that was better worn than the others. Jeremiah Barnaby had set up a petrol station in his front yard for the use of his bootlegging brood. Every two weeks, the petrol was delivered via truck, and this, along with the comings and goings of the younger Barnabys, constituted the greatest flow of traffic on those mountain roads. Knowing that they would not be forthcoming with their answers, our unassuming geysers were likely to bring more trouble than a concerted effort to appear intimidating. Lucian even suggested a scenario where successfully overcoming one gang of backwoods toughs, dressed plainly as we were, might encourage the other members of the clan to bring the fight to us, believing that we got lucky or that the first group simply weren't as tough as this next one. No, we needed to walk in looking like we meant business. Dirty and hard business. It pained Lucian to say so, I could tell. 
but we needed to return to Lake Placid and visit the Barnabies in the morning. Going in half-cocked could ultimately lose us more time than waiting. This episode of Neon Jezebel will continue in just a moment. But first, we want to hear from you. Podcasts are the newest and most exciting way to listen to your favorite audio programs while on the go. But you already knew that. What you may not know is that the success and longevity of a podcast depends on you, our valued listeners. If you've enjoyed this program, we encourage you to write a review of our show. You can do this on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen from. You can also contact us directly. Find us on Instagram at Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word. Our announcer, Lisa Lemoire, is a continental beauty of the highest order, but you don't have to take my word for it. Find your way to Instagram at Neon Jezebel Podcast to have a look for yourself. While you're there, be sure to follow us to receive updates in a timely fashion. That's at Neon Jezebel Podcast, all one word, on Instagram. And now, we return to Neon Jezebel. Study, study, study as you go. Keep that devil off your back, don't give him any slack. Cry, Jesus, Lord knows how the story goes, he'll carry all the load. Come, Jesus, study, study. Neither of us felt much like supper that evening, but we soldiered through a functional repast. Lucian went to the main centre to inform Dr. Syme, Rosamond's father, of what details he had. The police had been by already, but they were gathering information rather than doling it out. The evening gave us time to think through our strategy as best we could. We decided that I would doff my disguise as Jackson Edgewater, a man of means being as aggressive a visage as you could manage with country folk, the whole weight of the injustices of social class hitting them like a punch in the nose. Lucian pulled out his dress uniform. I shaved that night. He didn't. The idea was for him to look the soldier and me to look the officer, or some similar pairing. The dress uniform was not ideal for that, so he wore the jacket unbuttoned and without the bars. If he gave off the impression that he had merely nicked the uniform off of a proper serviceman, that might have done more for our cause than the truth. For me, it was my best suit and the sword cane. Now... I know we haven't talked much about the war, Vivian. It's not a topic I care to revisit, except in abstraction. However, you must understand one thing about the training we received with the Praetorian Guard. Back when old man Roosevelt got it into his mind to start the Praetorian Guard, the specifics of that regiment's unique talents were intentionally downplayed. 
it might have sounded a little too sensational at the time. The general impression on the regular army was that the Praetorians were just the most charismatic boys Uncle Sam could find. When the war kicked off, the brass felt they needed to inspire a deeper admiration in the rank and file for these men with eagle heads on their shoulders. Army bases were covered in posters portraying the Praetorians as supermen that could bring charging soldiers to their knees with a single word, which wasn't entirely inaccurate. Using the voice requires a very particular modulation of tones. It's a select few who can do it, and no one is entirely sure why yet. If you can get the tone just right, it has a hypnotic effect on those listening. It clouds things up, gives them some difficulty in thinking about anything other than what you've told them. In the heat of battle, where instinct and training govern the majority of one's actions, the cloudiness can make it seem like mind control. However, it's also dash difficult to hear what anyone's saying, so we were not half as miraculous on the front lines as the posters suggested. This indoctrination of our own people, though, had the real effect of making us objects of extreme distrust among the soldiers. There were always rumors of Praetorians using the voice to keep men from retreating, the idea being that we entranced the boys in the trenches to stay and die while we in the leadership made good our escape. To combat this, there was one idea more than any other that was drilled into us in training. The voice is for the enemy. We chanted that during drills, nice and loud so that the others could hear us. We even began using it as a farewell. Officers would say it to dismiss us, all in the desperate hope that the rank and file would see us as the allies we were. I tell you this so that you understand why two Praetorian guards, wandering into what was likely to be hostile territory, would not lead with such a valuable ability. We could have simply strolled onto Barnaby's property and began calling out orders in the voice. Likely, we could have had them lined up like a proper military parade if we had. But living the way we did, reciting that phrase a hundred times a day, seeing the dark glances of our allies at every meal... For lack of a better word, we were afraid of it. Our whole experience of being in the guard instilled a fearfulness of using the voice at all. So, morning came. It was Thursday, and we had our plan of action. Lucian would drive, I was in the passenger seat. He had a pistol on his hip, and I had my sword cane. There were a few more weapons in the back, should they become necessary. I was actually quite confident as we left the retreat that morning. I was expecting a dust-up when we first arrived, followed by the patriarch presenting himself, and agreeing to a peaceful exchange to preserve the teeth of whatever tufts he had protecting him. Following the directions we received from the Miltons, we made our way through the hill country south of North Elba. We were reasonably confident that we had the right road, it was devoid of foliage, and there were deep grooves on either side that suggested the heavy sort of truck that might be delivering a fortnight's worth of petrol. Then we reached a fork in the road. Three diverging paths, none of which could be described as straight ahead. Lucian stopped the car, and we got out to inspect our options. None immediately presented itself as a favorite. All had some sort of recess where tires had worn down the earth, but none as deep as the road we had come in on. Turning back to the car, 
we found we were not alone. There was an elderly gentleman wearing a white suit with a blue shirt, all quite clean. He was inspecting our car with a look of approval. He had a full white beard, and something about him struck me as Jewish. I know you can't usually tell, but something in his bearing and his beard reminded me of those decidedly Jewish diamond brokers. Hello there, I said, quite friendly. Nice ride, he answered. Then he reached into his jacket and pulled out a kerchief. Removing his hat, he dabbed at his forehead. It was summer, after all. That action revealed a ring of keys hanging from his belt. I noted it with idle curiosity, but it made Lucian noticeably tense. You know how you can sense that shift in a close friend's demeanor without needing to see it? He was at my right hand, and I could feel the air move as he wound his muscles tight. Can I offer you something? Lucian said, moving to the passenger door of the car and opening the glove compartment. Oh, the old man said. I don't mind. Lucian produced a candy bar, which the old man inspected for a moment. Ah, that's my favorite, he smiled. What about you? He turned to me. Suppose you could spare a dime. Lucian gave me a very serious look, and I reached for my wallet. I just happened to have a mercury dime on me, which I handed over. That's mighty fine, the old man said. So where is it you two are headed? We're looking for the home of Jeremiah Barnaby, Lucian said quite seriously. I you now, replied the old man. That's not your final destination, though, is it? No, sir. Our employer, a lady, was kidnapped yesterday. We're hoping Mr. Barnaby can help us track her down. Unless, respectfully, you could tell us where she might be. The old man chuckled and patted Lucian on the cheek. Rightly, you best ask Jeremiah. Mind you, though, Barnaby does not live in a house of truths. Don't listen to the fortune teller. She'll tell you whatever makes you pay a dollar more. Read the cards for yourself if you want to see the truth. And remember that what we do comes from who we are. If there's something you want done, you gotta be the kind of person who does it. Think on that as you drive. I will, sir. Lucian replied with a deep nod that verged on a bow. So, you wanna go up this way? and he gestured off to the leftmost tributary road. You follow that until you see the iron gate. Mr. Barnaby, and this is the Mr. Barnaby from before the setting one. He had that old iron gate built when things were really looking up for them. Thought he was setting up a great house of New Britannia. Dreams only take you so far, and you gotta keep dreaming. And clear water's not always as safe as brown. He gave Lucian a pat on the shoulder. Yeah, I think that should see you through. Godspeed now. He tipped his hat to the both of us, then set off down the road we had come up. Are we trusting him? I asked. Damn right, Lucian said. We do anything but what he said. We're liable to end up a ghost story. You think he's so reliable? That was St. Peter. You're sure of that? I can't explain it all. We don't have time and there's steps to it. Like trying to understand a chemistry book before you've learned arithmetic. But yeah, that was St. Peter. Naturally, this was far too sensational a claim to let sit, and I demanded a more in-depth answer. I think he sensed that my dubiousness on this point might affect how far I trusted him in the future. It was clear he regretted saying anything about it, but the cat was out of the bag. 
Lucian did his best to give me a broad overview of certain theological concepts, but I fear I didn't entirely follow it. What struck me most deeply was that he had gotten all of this from Rosamond. I hadn't thought that a woman who went around the country encouraging women to intimately pleasure themselves would be overly concerned with the nuances of scripture. However, based on what Lucian did tell me, she seems to have made quite a study of it. Or, at least, takes very seriously certain people who have. Again, I'm frightfully unqualified to explain all this. However, it proved a fitting prelude to what we would find at the Barnaby home. It is getting late. Shall we adjourn, or do I pour you another sherry? Neon Jezebel is made by Zachary Westbrook. Announcements by me, Su Gang Li. Announcements by me, Lisa Lemoyne. You can find Neon Jezebel on the web at our Instagram, Neon Jezebel Podcast. If you enjoyed this program, be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. You can visit our website, neonzezebel.com. That's N-E-O-N-J-E-Z-E-B-E-L.com. Come.